Good afternoon. It's Friday the 12th of March 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century War. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, we'll get straight on uh, with uh, AstraZeneca, which, of course, uh, well, a bit of problems for them. They seem to have been cancelled, banned, uh, deplatformed, perhaps, we might say. Uh, they... Uh, Bulgaria joined the the, uh, the cancellation this morning. Uh, Canada, Australia, Mexico, the Philippines, South Korea, Thailand, Denmark, I think kicked it off. Uh, Norway and Iceland uh, have all decided to uh, at least suspend the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, Italy and Austria have stopped using a particular batch. Um, and some people saying that this is not the same batch that's been used in the UK. Uh, Canada is continuing to uh, encourage people to get the jab, but not the AstraZeneca one. Um, so Health Canada is aware of reports of adverse events in Europe following immunization with AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine and would like to reassure Canadians that the benefits of the vaccine continue to outweigh the risks. Um, so that seems to be a bit uh, schizophrenic. But anyway, uh, Denmark was saying that it was pausing for 14 days, not opting out uh, completely. Uh, they were very keen to stress that. So what has the MHRA said? Well, they said vaccine safety is of paramount importance and we continue to monitor the safety of vaccines to ensure that the benefits outweigh any potential risks. That's very similar to what Canada said. Um, that could be a rapid response mechanism at work there, making sure we've got a common narrative. But anyway, interesting. interesting. Yeah, uh, it has not been confirmed that the report of a blood clot in Denmark was caused by the COVID-19 vaccine uh, AstraZeneca. Uh, they said blood clots, blood clots can occur naturally and are not uncommon. More than 11 million doses of the vaccine have now been administered across the UK. Reports of blood clots received so far are not greater than the number that would have occurred naturally in the vaccinated population is what they are claiming. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, do you trust the regulators? Um, because they haven't been doing a whole lot of regulation, haven't they? Isn't this, aren't these vaccines, haven't they been waved through under emergency? Measures, is that right? Yeah, it's absolutely right, yes. So that means the regulators really haven't been involved. They've been sidelined by the emergency uh, declaration, haven't they? Well, they certainly haven't uh, had the data uh, and valued the data over a terribly great length of time. So uh, that certainly is a reasonable thing to say. That would be the number one cause of concern, wouldn't it? That uh, a vaccine that would normally take four to ten years to develop uh, has basically been knocked out in eight months, right? Yes, uh, but uh, Dr. Bakhti uh, said something on this recently. Dr. Sutarit Bakhti from the University of Mainz in Germany, uh, one of the most cited immunologists, by the way, uh, probably in Europe. Um, he's, he's among the top. So he's, he's super qualified in this area. Now, he will we'll show you the letter that he and other doctors have drafted uh, to the European Medicines Agency. Uh, we'll show that in a minute. But let's listen to what he has to say about blood clots. You mentioned blood clots before. Yes. Well, that's, that is the whole reason that this, is, this situation has arisen, that there's suspension across so many countries for AstraZeneca. Incredibly, uh, they, when they put this statement together, it was a few weeks ago. Uh, and they had, already, they had already highlighted that, flagged that as the, one of the number one risks of these vaccine products. Let's go ahead and, and hear what he has to say. Yeah. Two dangerous things must then be expected to happen. Firstly, many copies of the virus spike would appear on the cell surface. These may directly bind and activate blood platelets, which will trigger blood clotting. Secondly, the cells producing the spike protein may be attacked by our own immune system because the immune system is trained to recognize and destroy cells that produce the virus. Damage to the blood vessel lining must be expected to cause the blood to clot as well. The effect is likely magnified in individuals receiving their second vaccinations, as well as in patients who have been infected with any coronavirus shortly before or after vaccination. This may well have contributed to the observed clusters of deaths in senior homes. And there have been case reports of severe illness and deaths occurring in young and middle-aged persons because of profound disturbances in blood clotting. 
Triggering clot formation in your vessels is always potentially life-threatening. If clots form at vulnerable sites in brain, spinal cord, and heart, interruption of blood flow may have irreversible and even fatal effects. It was for this reason that we wrote one week ago entirely privately to the EMA, alerting them to our concerns and requesting evidence that these possible dangerous effects of the vaccines had been excluded in preclinical studies prior to their approval. However, we have received no reply from the EMA, and we are thus forced to believe that the potential dangers of the vaccines had never been excluded. That's quite a strong statement, Andon. So uh, what is the situation with the letter then? Well, uh, the, the letter's been drafted. This is a new organization it's called Doctors for COVID Ethics, and uh, they have released this letter to the public. Originally, Mike, this was done privately, okay, mm -hmm. from professionals to the regulatory agencies in Europe. But as you can see, urgent open letter now uh, from doctors and scientists to the European Medicines Agency regarding COVID-19 vaccine safety concerns. There's a URL down at the bottom if you want to go find this online, doctors for number four covidethics.medium.com. Let's look at some of the uh, stronger statements that were made in this letter. And I'm, I'm telling you, this is a everything you need to know about this case in terms of prioritizing safety and efficacy is in this letter. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people to get to it, use it, uh, share it on social media, take quotes from it and link to it. Everybody get, get on this immediately because it's so important, this information. But let's look at this. This is what they said. Should all such evidence not be available, the authors write, they're talking about the evidence regarding efficacy and safety. Uh, we demand that approval for use of the gene-based vaccines, they're talking about the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna to be specific, uh, be withdrawn until all the above issues have been properly addressed by the exercise of due diligence by the EMA. So, I mean, that's a really forthright <laughs> declaration there and a real challenge to the regulatory body, but it goes on here. Let's take a look at what else they have to say. Uh, we are supportive in principle of the use of new medical interventions. However, there are serious concerns, including but not confined to those outlined above, that the approval of the COVID-19 vaccines by the EMA was premature and reckless, and they continue, and that the administration of the vaccines constituted and still constitute human experimentation. I repeat, human experimentation on a mass scale, I might add myself, but uh, here they, they finish off by saying, which was and still is in violation of the Nuremberg Code. So you can go and read the Nuremberg Code. I mean, this is part of history. It's a, mm -hmm. the, there's a warning that was issued uh, in the aftermath of World War II is that there are certain lines, red lines, that countries, governments, societies cannot cross, mm -hmm. okay? And, and these doctors are arguing, and not just them, Mike. There's a number of lawyers. Uh, there's a lot of people globally. Doctors globally are asking questions about this all over the world. We have so many reports of this, okay? And what's happened? Well, we seem to be have crossed that red line, but on a global scale. Where's the media on this? Where are the regulatory agencies on this? Where are the watchdogs? Well, uh, the watchdogs are the general public at the moment, it seems. The media, well, we'll come on to the media a little bit. And uh, the regulators are fully on board with pharmaceutical companies, it seems. It seems like they've been captured by corporate interests in this case. Um, yeah, well, uh, uh, another day, another vaccine uh, released, because this is uh, what Matt Hancock was saying late uh, yesterday evening, really encouraging results from Novavax. Uh, tonight, it's uh, on its efficacy against variants. Uh, we've ordered 60 million doses, and if approved by the medicines regulator, as if it wouldn't be, uh, it will be another boost to the UK's vaccination rollout as we work to overcome this virus. Um, so Novavax is claiming 100% uh, efficacy. Um, they're not even in the 90s percent. They are claiming 100%. Um, so that's uh, quite a bold claim. And it's the variants as well. So this is, this is the UK's canard, basically. They're hanging the whole the whole operation on the, the new variants. Mm. But then unfortunately, the numbers don't reflect or don't show that there's a pandemic underway. 
Uh, we've shown the numbers in past programs, and you have as well, statistics on, on almost every single metric. And what are these variants? Can anybody prove that anybody has gotten ill or have died from any of these variants? Do you know, or is this theoretical? Or what, it, what sort of science are we, clinical, what sort of clinical science are we dealing with uh, here? None. None. Uh, but uh, don't worry, because we have a new target group. Uh, we're going to vaccinate the homeless. We've got to vaccinate the homeless, apparently. Uh, this is the JCVI, that's uh, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization, uh, has advised the government to prioritise people experiencing homelessness, including those sleeping rough, uh, for the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, they say that many people who are homeless or sleeping rough are likely to have underlying health conditions, which could place them in priority group six. Uh, these are likely to be underdiagnosed and not properly reflected in GP records. And they say that due to current restrictions, many thousands of people who sleep rough have been housed in emergency accommodation. This provides a unique opportunity to offer vaccination to those often unable to access basic health care. Um, so they're advising local teams to consider a universal offer to adults experiencing homelessness and rough sleeping alongside those in priority group six. Um, so here is uh, uh, Professor uh, Y-Shan Lim from the JCVI, and he said, people experiencing homelessness are likely to have health conditions that put them at higher risk of death from COVID-19. I find this press release extremely interesting, Patrick, because that was as far as it went. No statistics, no comment from the professor that, uh, you know, uh, there were 20% of all homeless people had uh, had uh, COVID-19 in the past 12 months and, and, you know, two or 300 of them had died or whatever it happens to be. So a vague claim, but nothing to support nothing it. Nothing to support it. And here is uh, Rosanna O'Connor from Public Health England. Uh, she said people who are homeless experience some of the uh, some of the highest rates of poor health outcomes and undiagnosed health issues. But again, no comment about COVID-19 specifically. And in fact, you know, if, if we look at the mainstream press uh, over the last period of time, we've seen headlines like this. Coronavirus hasn't devastated the homeless as many feared. Uh, and, uh, and that, There's a plethora of reports that reflect this exact same thing. So what are these public health England officials talking about, Mike? So wh where is, it, where is the, the, the urgency uh, in this case to prioritise this particular demographic? Uh, here's another one from The Telegraph. Homeless people are trying, trying to catch coronavirus report finds. Well, I'm not going to focus too much on that. To get, to get the payment, right? Well, <laughs> the, the, what they're saying? Well, no, they're saying because uh, it, it would mean that they would get accommodation, at least temporary accommodation. But this was the, this was the point. Uh, the Office for National Statistics showed that even before the pandemic, the estimated deaths of homeless people reached the highest on record of 778, an increase of 7.2% since 2018. Two in five deaths were related to drug poisonings, while suicides increased by 30% up to 112. Mm -hmm. So this government hasn't cared, and the JCVI hasn't cared, uh, the Public Health England hasn't cared about homeless people uh, at any point in history until now, and suddenly they've got to be prioritized. This because seems a bit coincidental. Because Coroni's on the scene, that's why. Yes. So now all of a sudden we're interested in homeless people because Coroni's in the frame. So that's just uh, a warm and... and fuzzy, plushy story there. Yes. Uh, now, a number of people sent this uh, through to me. Uh, this is from LifeSite in Canada. Bombshell Stats Canada claims lockdowns, not COVID-19, are driving excess deaths. Now, I think the UK column has been saying this since when, Patrick? Mm. April last year. April last year. Uh, yes. But anyway, let's have a look at what this says. Uh, they say that Canada's National Statistical Agency stated in a report released yesterday that there are excess deaths in the country uh, when compared with previous years, but those deaths are not due only to COVID-19, but are due increasingly to what it calls indirect consequences of the pandemic. In other words, government policy. And they cite examples such as delayed medical procedures due to lockdowns and increased substance use. Uh, they say that uh, in the early months of the pandemic, the weekly number of excess deaths and deaths caused by COVID-19 were closely aligned and mostly affected older populations, suggesting that COVID-19 itself was driving excess mortality in Canada. Uh, 
But however, more recently, the number of excess deaths has been higher than the number of deaths due to COVID-19. These deaths are uh, affecting younger populations, suggesting that other factors, including possible indirect impacts of the pandemic, are now at play. Uh, and uh, so uh, what I really wanted to, to make the point here, Patrick, was that, of course, we have been on this for quite some time. And if we look at uh, the uh, latest report from the Office for National Statistics and we look at where uh, the excess mortality has been taking place, uh, the first thing to note is that we see surge, surges in hospital and in care homes back in uh, April and May last year and another surge uh, in during the winter months this year. Um, but if we just take hospitals and compare that with people's homes, uh, what we see is that in the summer months from June until September at the earliest, at the latest, sorry, uh, there was significantly below uh, average mortality taking place in hospitals. That means, that says to me that the hospitals either weren't receiving the usual levels of custom uh, or uh, the, suddenly the hospitals have produced a magical result here, but nonetheless, significantly it, below the, the average. It is a combination of that and also it tracks seasonally as well. Yes. So it makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. But if you look at the people dying in their own homes, in their own properties, whether it be rented or, or owned, it has been consistently above the five-year average right through the year. So there was no similar reduction in excess mortality during the summer months in the UK uh, compared to hospitals and compared to care homes. And that says to me that either people were uh, not wanting to go to hospital because of the fear that had been put into them or their hospital treatment had been uh, had been reduced as a result of the hospital reorienting for COVID-19 alone uh, to the detriment of other conditions, uh, or we're seeing uh, a rise in suicide and substance abuse as the Canadians are talking about, or a combination of all those things. Um, and I think that it's about time there was some serious uh, inquiry into why we're seeing this excess mortality in homes uh, as opposed to other locations. In any winter flu season, we see, or any winter respiratory illness season, we see uh, a rise in deaths in hospitals and in care homes. Uh, this year, it has apparently been above the five-year average. But the point that's been made, one of the points that's been made to me a number of times, is that actually over the last couple of years, um, there has been less mortality than uh, you know. We've had some pretty good years in the last couple of years. Uh, and so this horrible term gets used of dry tinder. So mm. people that, were, that, that hadn't been uh, killed as a result of the previous year's winter respiratory illness season, as might happen in other years, uh, lived on through to the following year. And we saw some of that uh, extra mortality that way. But I, I stick by what we have said from the beginning, that a lot of this excess mortality we're seeing, even in the hospitals and the care homes, has been a result of policy rather than uh, COVID-19 itself. And, and a total, totally ignoring the concept of total harm reduction. I remember back in late March, early April, we uh, showed the work of David Katz from the University of Yale. And you know, you have to consider the total harm reduction of the measures that you're taking. And if, you're, if they're causing more harm, the response, the mitigation measures, uh, then the actual threat from the, the actual thing that you're trying to protect the people against, in this case, COVID-19, then obviously the policy is no good. Right. And you could say the same with vaccines as well. Uh, and that's, that's a legitimate question to ask that doctors are asking. Is the risk of injury or death from the vaccine greater in some population clusters than the actual risk from dying of COVID? Because if the answer is yes, you have a big problem yes. with regards to this rollout. And there's a great term from that Canadian article that I think would be an absolute propaganda jewel in the crown. So some advice to Sage here. Uh, uh, indirect consequences of the pandemic. Use that when you're talking about lockdown deaths. Indirect consequences of the pandemic. That's a little, we're throwing you a solid to the Behavioral Insights team. Yeah, go Good for work. it. Good work. Yes. Uh, okay, what, uh, what's the situation in the United States then uh, with regard to uh, coronavirus? What has Biden been up to? Biden, no one's seen much of Biden. He's, uh, he's elusive. 
It's one of the most elusive presidents in history. Hasn't done a, uh, a State of the Union or a, a speech or anything to the people, but he does appear from time to time. He hasn't even done any press conferences, I understand. No, I think he he's doing his first one this week, isn't he? Today, maybe? Apparently, apparently. Joe's a little bit slow, so we've got to give him time. But uh, so Joe's all about the pandemic. He's all about vaccines. He wants to get as many shots into people's arms as possible. And this is the metric that the Biden administration has for success and for helping the country defeat the uh, the pandemic, mm. the pandemic. But listen to listen to Joe here. I've told you before, I carry a card in my pocket with the number of Americans who have died from COVID to date. It's on the back of my schedule. As of now, total deaths in America. 527,726. That's more deaths than in World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, and 9-11 combined. So. It's a death call. It it's is. a death call. 500,000, 600,000. The, the number just keeps climbing and climbing. It'll climb in perpetuity forever. Uh, normally, you cut off seasonal uh, deaths on any any pathogen or whatever at the at the year, and then you start from zero again. But not not with this, not with COVID. You got to keep the, the the meter running there. So, you, what do you think about conflating COVID, dying with or from or any possibility or diagnosed as COVID without a test or a PCR test? All of these numbers that they're and, and comparing that to deaths in wars. World War One, World War Two, Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, you, deaths and wars is pretty clear what the what the cause of death was. Whereas deaths from uh, a pandemic, uh, particularly this one, uh, it's not clear at all because nobody's being there are no postmortem postmortems being done, no no way to tell whether somebody has died of or with, uh, and uh, so. Uh, uh, it's quite <laughs> the, the demagoguery it's quite, is unbelievable. Yes, sure. It's completely outrageous, and people should be pushing back against this. So, but the media is totally supine in America. And Joe pulls out his card. I've got my card. I've got my card. Six hundred thousand deaths this week. My staff have given this to me, and he puts it back in his pocket. So he pulls that thing out every week and reads it. This is like some bizarre skit from some comedy show or something. I don't know. So anyway, the deaths then justifying the vaccines. Yes, the vaccines. And that's his big deliverable is the vaccines. Here's Joe promising victory. I said a goal that many of you said was that kind of way over the top. I said I intended to get 100 million shots in people's arms in my first 100 days in office. Because we've actually on track to reach this goal of 100 million shots in arms on my 60th day in office. No other country in the world has done this. None. Well, let me be clear. That doesn't mean everyone's going to have that shot immediately, but it means you'll be able to get in line beginning May 1. Every adult will be eligible to get their shot. And to do this, we're going to go from a million shots a day that I promised in December, before I was sworn in, to maintaining, beating our current pace of two million shots a day, outpacing the rest of the world. What an achievement. Spectacular. America's back. We're going to put two million shots a day in arms. Thank you, Joe. So he's the pandemic president. Okay, this is, this is Joe. Let's listen to... This is the coup de grace. This has to be the coup de grace here. Take a look at this. Washington Post, democracy dies in the dark. Sure it does. There he is. There he is. That's Pandemic Joe, as he's known. Where would he be without the pandemic? Nobody knows. Nobody knows where he is anyway on a good day. So Independence Day is the goal line for Joe Biden. Let's look at this. So it's it's been just under a year since former President Trump set the ambitious goal for moving beyond the coronavirus by Easter. That goal, as with many of Trump's predictions and goals during the pandemic, proved to be overly optimistic, says the Washington Post here. And they go on. Here's the kicker. July 4th, Biden has cast it as the chance to not only mark our independence as a nation, but we begin to mark our independence from the virus says Joe Biden. I'm so inspired right now. I, you, you don't you have no idea. He said that the goal will be to have small gatherings rather than packed churches. He's talking about Easter. 
forget about Easter, that seems to be canceled, that Trump suggested could be just around the corner. So, I mean, that's, 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 that's what they're putting out there. So here's Joe. This is his big 4th of July speech here. This should make you feel, really, if you're an American listening, you should be really proud right now. This is, I mean, the patriotism is just sizzling up my kundalini right now. Listen to Joe Biden. Because here's the point. If we do all this, if we do our part, if we do this together, by July the 4th, there's a good chance you, your families and friends, will be able to get together in your backyard or in your neighborhood and have a cookout and a barbecue and celebrate Independence Day. That doesn't mean large events with lots of people together, but it does mean small groups will be able to get together. After this long, hard year, that will make this Independence Day something truly special, where we not only mark our independence as a nation, but we begin to mark our independence from this virus. That's spectacular. I got a news flash for you, Joe. We're already, most people are already independent from the virus, but you don't seem to be independent from the virus. So he's basically saying, what happened to Independence Day? They said, oh, it's Independence Day, 4th of July, but not big gatherings. Mm -hmm. You just might, you just might be able to meet with a few people in your back garden for a couple of kibasas and burgers. So it's something to look forward to. My goodness. My yes. goodness. Well, okay, let's come back to the UK then. And I want to really highlight a fantastic piece of uh, citizen journalism here. This is from a website called Citizen Journalists. Doing the job corporate media or corporate journalists don't is how they tag themselves. And the headline here is confirmed there wasn't a whole, war whole ward of COVID children as claimed by Laura Duffel of King's College Hospital. Um, so what was this about? Well, the BBC had interviewed uh, this lady, Laura Duffel, uh, in, on the 1st of January 2021 uh, and uh, she had said uh, she was speaking to uh, Adrian Childs on Radio 5 Live and she said it was minimally affecting children in the first wave but we now have a whole ward of children here this was her claim and of course Adrian Childs being the great journalist it is he, he did question her right uh, he pushed back on that claim right no no which is why citizen journalism have done exactly that and they've done the work uh, and so here's the result. So here says in journalists and on the 1st of uh, January, uh, the uh, writer emailed to the hospital and asked them the following. Could you tell me how many children are currently treated, uh, being treated for SARS-CoV-2 in your hospital by children? I'm referring to those under the age of 18. If I could also have a breakdown of that number into age brackets too. Uh, and they responded on the uh, 24th of January and they said the below figures are accurate as at the 12th of the 1st 2021 and in alignment with our daily statutory submission to NHSI and uh, as you can see that they had uh, two children between the ages of 0 and 5 and four children between the ages of 6 and 17 so that's six children in total in the hospital now the uh, must be a very small ward Mike well this is a good point but this is what the author has uh, the point that they were making because uh, they wanted to know were these six children on the same ward because they wanted to know what size the ward was. They were quite happy to consider the possibility that the children's ward may have only had six beds. So the fact that there were only six children may well have meant that the statement made by the nurse was, was absolutely correct. Technically but the, correct. But the, Yes, but the trust replied three of the patients were on the same ward, the other three were all on different wards. So that that confirmed that the statement was incorrect. So the uh, author went back and said, uh, Laura Duffel, who was, who was a matron at King's College Hospital, said on BBC on the 1st of the 1st, 21, that there is, was a whole ward of children with COVID-19 at the hospital. Can you confirm if this claim is true? And if so, how many children exactly were on the ward that would make it full? Uh, and the response came back to manage predicted demand generated by the second wave of COVID-19. The trust converted one 12 bed paediatric ward to a COVID-19 only ward. On the 2nd of January 2021, there were two children at the trust who were on this ward. Wow. So uh, I have to say well done to Citizen Journalists website and the person who wrote this article, uh, because this is what we need to see much more of challenging uh, statements that are being made unchallenged on the BBC or in any other 
uh, old media organization. Time and time again, whether it's in the UK and the mainstream media or in the US, you see these uh, people that would appear out of nowhere, uh, people, nurses or hospital officials, and they make these big sweeping statements uh, by the on, on the press, Mike, and then they make claims that are completely unsubstantiated, and they, and they have been proven time and time again to be totally exaggerated and sort of engaging in the worst kind of uh, fear tactics and demagoguery. And a lot of these people end up being in line for MBEs, or they get, you know, they get media publicity out of it, or something like that. So this is a whole new breed of kind of medical professionals or nurses, doctors, YouTube doctors, yes. Sky News doctors. Yes, and they're being encouraged by the mainstream press. And one of the worst, of course, is Channel Four News, um, who are absolutely on board with the current uh, government narrative. But they didn't seem to always be. At some point in the past. Uh, they seem to have switched from being quite a challenging uh, media outlet to being absolutely uh, on board with everything government says. So um, somebody sent this to me, and thank you very much to the person that did. Uh, it's from 2009, it's Channel 4 News, and I just want, I'm, just, I'm not going to play the entire clip, but I'm going to play a little bit of it just to give you an impression of what Channel 4 News used to be like, uh, and just can, uh, compare that with with what we see from uh, BBC and Channel 4 News these days. Greatest medical scandals of the century, according to a leading health expert in Brussels, the Council of Europe Health Chief has accused major pharmaceutical firms of organizing a campaign of panic and unduly influencing World Health Organization decisions. And with European countries now burdened with bills for millions of unwanted doses of the swine flu vaccine, he wants an investigation. Our science correspondent Tom Clark has this report. The predictions for the impact of swine flu on Britain were grim. The government's response, spending hundreds of millions of pounds on antiviral drugs and vaccines, adverts and leaflets. Were governments misled into preparing for the worst? Politicians in Brussels are now asking for an investigation into the role pharmaceutical companies played in influencing political decisions that led to a swine flu spending spree. There must be a process to, to get more transparency, how the decisions in the, in the WHO, how they function and who is influencing the decisions of the WHO and what is the role of the pharmaceutical industry there. I'm very suspicious about the processes which are behind this uh, pandemic. The Council of Europe Committee want the investigation to focus on the World Health Organization's decision to lower the threshold required for a pandemic to be formally declared. The world is now at the start of the 2009 influenza pandemic. When this happened. So, look, that's just a little snippet from that report. I'm sure if somebody, if, you, if people hunt for it for the full report, they'll find it online. So, in 2009, Patrick, uh, Channel 4 News was uh, leading the way in criticizing what was going on with respect to swine flu and uh, the, the, the fear that was, was being generated in order to uh, generate a market for unneeded vaccinations. And the Tamiflu debacle and all of this sort of, you know, exaggerated claims. And, and as you mentioned earlier when we were talking for the show, uh, the World Health Organization lowered the threshold for declaring a pandemic. That's, what, that's exactly the point they've just made. And, 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 did, so, and, and lowered it further yes. last February yes. in 2020. So that, but that was 2009. Now, when did Bill Gates come on the scene with the, the World Health Organization? Was that 2010 or so? Uh, around that time is when uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation started getting and really pouring money uh, right around the industry in terms of pharmaceuticals, vaccines, funding for all sorts of institutions, especially the World Health Organization. So really it stepped it up. So yes, yeah, so it looks like they tried to pull this gag back in 2009. It failed. It was called out by the mainstream media at the time. The mainstream media isn't calling it out anymore. Uh, but uh, as soon as that year was finished, then we started to see, seeing the major push from the, the vested interests to get to, to make sure that that situation could never arise again. A lot of analysts look at 2009 swine flu and they said that that was the test run for what we're seeing right now. Yes. And it didn't quite uh, get lift off. It didn't quite work. It was problematic. That massive pushback, as you can see, mm -hmm. from mainstream media. But all of those holes have been plugged, especially the media coverage. We'll show you how that works. I might add, just before we go on, Mike, Jon Snow. What happened to Jon Snow? He was doing good journalism. He was opposing the Iraq war. Uh, and all of a sudden, he's the first person, you know when they say once you become red-pilled, you never go back? John, John Snow 
red-pilled and now he's addicted to blue pills again. So he, he did sort of reverse in the other direction. Yes, I, I'd like yeah. to understand that a little bit. Uh, but uh, what's, what's Billy Goats up to these days? Billy Goats. Billy Goats is back uh, in the news. Unfortunately, this is a daily occurrence. But look at this. This is from the Children's Health Defense Organization here, headed by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Look at this headline. Before COVID, Gates planned social media censorship and vaccine of vaccine safety advocates with pharma, CDC, media, China, and the CIA. What's he talking about here? Well, take a look at this. In October of 2019, shortly before the COVID outbreak, Gates and other powerful individuals began planning how to censor vaccine safety advocates from social media during a tabletop simulation of a worldwide pandemic known as Event 201. Now, a lot of our viewers, Mike, will be familiar with that. That was an event. It was staged. It was funded by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, hosted by Johns Hopkins University. A lot of major players were involved in this simulation, you might call it, but it was almost like a walkthrough, mm -hmm. really, from what we saw in 2020. I mean, but this was just a coincidence, nothing to see here, but they go on. Look at this. At Gates's direction, these the, these eminence role-played members of the Pandemic Control Council, that was the name of the group in the simulation, wargaming government strategies for controlling the pandemic, the narrative, and the population. Now, you have reported about the control of the population with the uh, Behavioral Insights Team, Spy B, mm -hmm. um, and really gone into detail how that's carried out here uh, in the UK vis-a-vis uh, -vis the government. And we've also shown some also similar things in the United States. But, but take a look at this. Here's, this, here's the, uh, the transcript uh, from their, from their uh, simulation here. Look at this. They, if you go and read through this transcript from Event 201 here, this is absolutely fascinating. And it really shows you how they've really focused. This is one of the big areas of the simulation was how to control the narrative, how to deal with dissenting uh, opinions with alternative media outlets, with people on social media, challenging vaccines, for instance, challenging the pharmaceutical companies. That seemed to be the biggest concern, mm -hmm. one of the biggest concerns of this event. Uh, and so there's no question from any of these people, look at this. This, this is a quote I picked out here, Mike. Some governments have taken control of national access to the internet. Others are censoring websites and social media content, and a small number have shut down internet access completely to prevent the spread of misinformation. Penalties have been put in place for the spread of harmful falsehoods, including arrests. So this is what they were sort of wargaming back then. Mm. Uh, and and a, lot of, a lot of people would say, oh, well, that was just theoretical. Well, we're seeing some of the very same things happening today. Well, we're going to come on to that in a little bit, yes. Exactly. So here's Robert F. Kennedy. He wrote this, uh, this piece here. This is what he said. And this should really wake people up here. Over the last two weeks, Facebook and other social media sites have deplatformed me and many other critics of regulatory corruption and authoritarian public health policies. This is Robert F. Kennedy from Children's Health Defense. And then he goes on here. So here is some fodder for those of you who have the eerie sense that the government industrial pandemic response feels like it was planned even before there was a pandemic. So, you know, he's been accused of being many things. And normally by he's being accused by people that he is exposing. Mm. And they're calling him a conspiracy theorist, they're calling him all sorts of an anti-vaxxer, okay? An accomplished lawyer, a great uh, uh, litigator as well for environmental and health causes. And his organization he's put together, they have exposed so much. And he's being deplatformed by Silicon Valley mm. for printing facts, for printing peer-reviewed science, mm. and for challenging this uh, uh, pandemic industrial complex he's calling. It's not an exaggeration. So the censorship is real, Mike. It certainly is. The censorship is real. We've been censored. This program, the UK column, has been censored uh, for these uh, under these very uh, auspices. And 21st Century Wire was also censored uh, yesterday. Uh, here's uh, 21 Wire, video banned by YouTube. This was the title of the video. It was, why should you question vaccine passports, why you should question vaccine passports. It was taking off YouTube, 
uh, and it's really just an audio clip of myself from the Sunday Wire with some, uh, some music and some stock footage over the top. So it's really just me giving my analysis, challenging the policy. But that was deemed here by the uh, censors, the high priests here at YouTube, as medical misinformation. Medical misinformation. So challenging the WHO, here it is in, in print, this is forbidden, any content which disputes the efficacy of local health authorities or WHO guidance, WHO guidance, on social distancing and self-isolation that may lead people to act against that guidance. What do you think of that statement there? I mean, that's a pretty wide net that they're casting, isn't it? Every, every public health official, local public health official in the world, right? Uh, it, well, exactly. And, and it is a wide net that they're casting. They can just make it up as they go along. Now, well, two weeks ago, you were on this program, the 12th of uh, February. That program was uh, removed from YouTube uh, using the same uh, terms, medical misinformation. Um, there was uh, a request from us to get more information on why uh, that, you know, specifically what was it that, that was uh, the, that triggered it, and they refused to uh, respond to that. Uh, and uh, so we actually don't know, and they aren't saying what it was uh, that uh, that caused that takedown. Um, but Whitney Webb's been taken down from YouTube. Vanessa Bailey's been taken down. Sorry, from Patreon. Vanessa Bailey's been taken down from YouTube yesterday. Completely, her channel closed, uh, um, and, and a, a number of others that uh, will come to mind in a minute have, have, have many, been, others. many others. Many uh, others. Many others. So the deplatforming is is moving ahead very very quickly now. And after you appealed and told me you didn't get any response for that, so I didn't bother appealing that way. I just said to them, why don't you change your community guidelines to say any criticism of the WHO policies or local health uh, policies is forbidden. Mm. Just just come out and say any criticism of policies mm. is not is not uh, allowed on our platform. That would be more honest of YouTube. But instead, they're using these vague catch-all sort of dragnet, basically, so they can arbitrarily strike down any content which they don't like for political reasons or just because it goes against the corporate agenda of some of the biggest advertising spenders on those platforms, by the way. Yes. So I, what I did was take the, uh, the video here, uh, why, why you should question the vaccine passports. I put it on Rumble. It's doing very well in Rumble. This is a more of a free speech oriented platform. So we put it there and we've also given it to people uh, that they can take it and distribute it themselves. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, moving on, Mike, the, uh, on, the, on the vaccine passport issue, this is from MIT's Technological Review, Denmark, is one of those countries you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. They're really put, they've been pushing hard very early on for this Corona passport. So as a small sort of centralized European country, the, the, the experts believe that they could implement this more efficiently and better than any other country here. And so this is one of the heads of that program uh, here. And so what the, the authors here are saying that it might be difficult, they're gonna run into ethical considerations, data considerations, and so forth. And so here is the, uh, the author of uh, this particular uh, initiative here, Mar Martin Peterson Lennartz. Uh, his uh, real title, Mike, is Danish Public Sector Leader for the IBM Global Business Services. Ah, so, oh, right, IBM Global Business Services, I see. So he's running, apparently running point, promoting this new uh, vaccine passport system in Denmark. And this is what he has to say. I just called him a technocrat, by the way, because his title was too long. Um, he says, of the vaccine passport, it will combine data on tests and vaccines depending on local government rules. So you as a citizen just download the app and consent that the data be shared. Yes. And then he moves on. Then uh, when you enter an airplane or a concert or a restaurant, it generates a QR code and for the, for the business to scan. From the front end, it's rather simple here. So what is this? It, it, this is going to be track and trace, isn't it? The, the vaccine passport is going to be used as a track and trace app. Well, in the UK, it's very, very likely to be uh, part of the track and trace NHS app infrastructure. Yes. So you will exactly be tracked right. and traced. Yes. Whether you're healthy, whether you're sick, whatever country you go to, what venues you enter. Well, this is the key thing. The problem with track and trace at the moment is that uh, a positive test comes up. Uh, uh, so say I test positive, Patrick, uh, then I have to uh, tell the 
people at the track and trace center who my contacts were, that might be you, for example, uh, unless I'm using the, uh, the app that the government has provided, which I'm not. So, so that's my word then to, to identify everybody. But if there's a requirement for anybody who's entering a venue where you're gonna be in close proximity to anybody else, there's a requirement to scan a QR code, that problem goes away. That's why it's very important for this to be linked to track and trace for government. Mm -hmm. So you literally, from the time you walk out the door, if you walk out the door and you go to work, you go home, you go on a holiday, you come back, every single move that you make will be recorded yes. through this data sharing network. And it will be blockchain based. So that it, it can't be erased effectively, it, 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 depending on how you interpret blockchain technology on that. Yes. But uh, you know, do you think this is a good idea? Is this the sort of thing? By the way, it's not gonna end, Mike, with just COVID and vaccines. Digital identity, digital currency, social credit, carbon credits, and access to basic services. Yes. That, that's where this is going, okay? It's not just gonna end with vaccine passports and you get to go on holiday and get drunk on the beach for two weeks. You know, it's, it's, it's much bigger than that. We are being lured into a system and it's a globalized system. Mm -hmm. And that is really the end of your personal sovereignty. And quite frankly, it'll be the end of national sovereignty. Yes. If it's allowed to progress down that road. That's a serious statement. I, I agree, but uh, that we believe those are the end game implications of this technology. Okay, uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us there. That'd be fantastic. Uh, and uh, please also share our material that you find on the various platforms. Uh, that would be great as well. Now, in the last couple of programs, we have been uh, uh, advertising uh, Linda Thayer's Legal Expenses Crowdfunder. Uh, it was up to around £16,000. Uh, and then this happened. Patrick campaign not found. So it has been taken down by GoFundMe. Nobody is really aware of exactly what the reason was, uh, but uh, lots and lots of people and everybody that's contributed to it has received a note similar to this. Uh, please note a refund has been issued for your donation to Linda Thyers, to Linda's legal expenses. Um, and uh, the amount will return to you within three to seven business days. If you have any questions, uh, you can find answers and contact us 24-7 via the GoFundMe Help Centre, but they're, they're, nobody is getting any actual help from that other than, uh, well, it's, it's no longer there. So um, I'm not uh, aware at this point exactly what alternatives uh, might be uh, pursued at this time. So uh, we will uh, let everybody know as soon as possible. This is obviously going to be hugely disappointing for, for Lynn herself, um, who was uh, you know, really needing that uh, to pursue her legal case in France. Where could the pressure have come from, Mike? Only two places, right? Government or the pharmaceutical industry. Where else would it be coming from? Yeah, well, the, this, the, the problem, one of the problems here is there's huge pressure on these platforms to be regulated. Um, but there isn't any, nobody's talking about transparency and decision making or trans, so it, with respect to the regulation, it's do as the government says, but you don't have to explain to anybody why you've done it. Um, and this is, we're seeing this, you've already talked about this with your deep, your remove, your video removal on YouTube. We're seeing this on all the platforms. Things happen. You've got no real right of appeal. You've got no real right to understand exactly why uh, your material was removed. Uh, that is in this case, it is on YouTube and it's on all the other platforms as well. And I might add, there's a third party, Mike, that might also be likely for this cancellation of th things like a GoFundMe with Lynn Thire. It's the mainstream media. Journalists are uh, harassing these platforms, they call them, they mm -hmm. pressure them. They say, why are you, why are you running this platform? Why, why are you allowing this person on Facebook? Why are you allowing this, this person on this platform? They, and they do this and they, they're basically threatening Mike mm. to write a story about it or right. to expose it. And all of these websites, they don't want anything to do with bad press. Mm. So what are they gonna do? The easiest route is just to close the account, to cancel it and bow to the pressure of some of these uh, busy bodies uh, that were that in the mainstream media, and they work on behalf really of government mm. and uh, and big pharma. That's how that's how we've experienced it firsthand. Certainly with media on trial, the cancellation of that, the pressure came from yes. specific members of the mainstream media yes. who got involved 
and really scared the council in Leeds, didn't they? Yes. That, said, yes. Yeah. So th this is how it works. So that's what that's how that's what, how it works behind the scenes. Just so people know. Uh, well, we have asked uh, GoFundMe uh, for comment, uh, and if they do reply, we will of course let everybody know what that reply was. Uh, in the meantime, uh, here's another one if you would like to help. Um, this is Crowd Justice, uh, another crowd funder, uh, and uh, the. Uh, appeal is stop masks in schools and uh, so what are they saying this case is being brought uh, by law or fiction and other leading lawyers uh, involved in legal challenges to the government's response to COVID-19 uh, we're opposed to not only the enforced wearing of masks by children but all measures harming our children the nation the NHS and the economy uh, which are irrational or not justified by the evidence uh, the claimant is a child at school represented by their parent. The defendant to be named as soon as proceedings are issued is the child's school, uh, which is adopting a face covering policy following government guidance uh, while failing to properly consider the impact on children and staff, which they're obliged to do. Uh, so uh, you might want to consider that one. Now, let's uh, move uh, quickly on to Syria. Uh, and uh, here's The Economist, uh, and this is uh, today, or uh, it's for this coming uh, issue of The Economist. Ten years of war have broken Syria into pieces. And this is a spectacular propaganda piece. Um, a country divided is how they're describing it. So let's just look at some of the rhetoric. Uh, the price of food has soared in Syria. Well, it has indeed, leaving many of its people at risk of going hungry. No explanation about why the price of food has soared in Syria. <laughs> Nothing said about the fact that uh, the food growing regions are in the northeast where the United States is based uh, and uh, nothing said about sanctions on the country. Mm -hmm. Nothing said about that at all. Uh, it's all about Assad. It's all Assad's problem. Assad has no answers. Well, of course, uh, Assad has no support internationally amongst the Western nations that are imposing these sanctions. Uh, and so he doesn't have a direct answer to that. But nonetheless, they are implying this is uh, he is letting the Syrian people down in some way. In speeches, he often ignores Syria's big problems, but only half of Syria's hospitals are fully functioned. Again, sanctions, but we don't need to mention sanctions. The implication is that, a, that, that the Assad government is uh, somehow causing Syria's uh, uh, health service to fail. No, sanctions. Uh, Mr. Assad seems more concerned, they say, with keeping his people rather than the virus in check. Syria doesn't have a problem with the virus. People aren't dying in Syria at the moment of COVID-19. Uh, they've got other problems, and uh, this is not even on people's minds in general. Uh, so travel beyond the capital, and Mr. Assad's government looks less in charge, even in the areas he normally, normally controls. In the, portions of, in the portion of Syria controlled by the Kurds in the northeast, locals have ditched Arabic or Kurdish and the dollar is preferred. Nothing said here, Patrick, about the fact that this is the United States occupied area uh, and uh, that the US has been really playing with the Kurds. And pumping dollars into that region. Of course, for, yeah. for, for many years. Suitcases full of dollars. Yes. So no wonder the dollar is preferred because that yeah. is, that's the currency that's available to them in that area. A uh, more pragmatic Syrian president might have tried to cut deals with regional authorities devolving power in an attempt to keep the country unified. Of course, this is egregious propaganda because what the world, what the Western world wants is to see Syria balkanized in the way that Yugoslavia was, for example. And, and this, this, this idea that, that Assad should help the West promote this, this this Western policy. This is just insane. Not only that, Mike, this is false, this statement here. Assad did reach out to the regional authorities, including the Kurds, very early on to try to uh, come to some kind of a diplomatic solution, yeah, as, as well as paid the salaries, Mike, has paid the salaries to civil servants, any government employees, received their salaries, even in even in Al-Qaeda-held territories mm -hmm. in Idlib. So the, whoever wrote this article for The Economist doesn't know what they're talking about, quite frankly. Well, uh, that <laughs> in no sentence of this article is there any indication that they they know that what they're talking about or it is just intended to be absolutely egregious propaganda. And, and that we'll end with this one. Uh, on March the 1st, the parliament in Damascus ratified a law stripping citizenship from anyone who fails to renew their identity card after 10 years. It was aimed at those who have fled or broken free of Mr. Assad's rule. Many of them would like to return, but also want to see someone else in charge. Well, what kind of people are we talking about here, Patrick? Could we be talking about uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, ISIS, 
uh, people that are sitting in Idlib province at the moment, um, who um, in fact have been cutting the heads off 12-year-old boys and, and other similar atrocities over the last 10 or 11 years. People who took up arms against the state, people who accepted aid from foreign countries, uh, ex accepted money and, and weapons from, from foreign actors, Mike. Uh, people who are basically, a lot of them were also criminals. Some of them had criminal records before the war even in some cases. So there's a whole mix of different situations there. But the bottom line is if, you, if, if, if an enclave in the UK, a few thousand people in Britain, uh, tried to overthrow the government and occupy Cornwall and started killing people and bombing everything and taking snipers uh, against police officers, do you think they would go to renew their ID cards after uh, 10, year, uh, 10 years? No, they no wanna probably be, not. They'd want to be completely invisible mm. because the minute they do that, they're going to have to be held accountable for the things that they've done. Why should it be any different in Syria? Yes, so the question is, uh, was Vanessa Bailey's uh, YouTube channel taken down because uh, of comments that she'd been making on uh, coronavirus and COVID or was it because, in fact, there is pressure coming on Syria once again? I think that's much more likely. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's an attempt to shut down any opposing voice uh, against uh, what's uh, the, the pressure that's being built up on Syria at the moment. Now that Biden's back in control, uh, that agenda is right back on. Um, and uh, but if we think back to uh, the past, that one of the big events uh, that was really pushed by the mainstream press, which demonstrated uh, the atrocities of the Assad regime, as they call it, was the Duma, the alleged Duma chemical weapons attack. Uh, and of course, this uh, uh, was pushed by the uh, fact-finding mission, mission in Syria of the OPCW. Uh, well, a group of people have uh, got together and signed uh, what they're describing as a statement of concern on the Duma investigation by the uh, OPCW and they say, we wish to express our deep concern over the protracted controversy and political fallout surround, surrounding the OPCW and its investigation of the alleged chemical weapons attacks in Douma on 7th of April 2018. Uh, since the publication of the OPCW, by the OPCW of its final report on March 2019, a series of worrying developments has raised serious and substantial concerns with respect to the conduct of the investigation. These developments include instances in which OPCW inspectors involved with the investigation have identified major procedural and scientific irregularities, the leaking of a significant quantity of corroborating documents and the damning statements provided to UN Security Council meetings. Uh, they say it's now well established that some senior inspectors involved with the investigation, one of whom played a central role, reject how the investigation derived its conclusions and OPCW management now stands accused of accepting unsubstantiated or possibly manipulated findings with the most serious geopolitical and security implications. Uh, we call on the Director General of the OPCW to find the courage to address the problems within his organization relating to this investigation and ensure state parties and the United Nations are informed accordingly. In this way, we hope and believe uh, the credibility and integrity of the OPCW can be restored. So who's signing this then? Uh, well, we have uh, Joe Bustani, the ambassador to Brazil, who was the first director general of the PCW and former ambassador to the UK and France. Uh, Noam Chomsky is on the list. Andrew Cockburn, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, Professor Richard Falk, Tulsi Gabbard signed it today, Professor Ulrich Gostein. Uh, and you can see the list uh, which goes on here. Uh, Ray McGovern, ex-CIA, uh, Elizabeth Murray, uh, and so on, the list is uh, uh, very eminent uh, and uh, this needs to be taken seriously. Uh, we'll be publishing the full uh, details on the UK column website this afternoon. Even uh, Alan West, Lord West of Spithead, mm. uh, has signed this. Um, so, uh, so it's a bipartisan list there. I mean, yes. You've got people on the left, you've got people on the right, mostly on the left, actually. So it's uh, beyond any doubt, Mike. It's a, it was a complete cover-up. I, I honestly think it's going to be very difficult for the OPCW to reclaim its credibility and integrity after this because it's just so systemic, the cover-up of this. And what they have is NATO and, and you have Bellingcat and all these cutouts basically attacking the working group on uh, Syria media and propaganda. They're attacking the uh, dissenters on the OPCW. They're attacking WikiLeaks. They're attacking everybody who's basically le leaking legitimate documents 
that show that there is actually an internal cover-up in the OPCW. The UN has all these documents. Yes. They have all these testimonies. Plenty of people know about this, and I think, Mike, too many people know about it now to put this genie back in the bottle or you know, whatever, sweep it under the rug. But, but the, this, I mean, it can't be understated. This was one of the major events which was being used to try to drive uh, a, a, a narrative which would have led to, to bombing, further bombing of Syria and further warfare in Syria. It, it is a classic example of a hoax, a high-level hoax. They said, they said there was, first it was a sarin attack, then it was a chlorine bomb that hit uh, uh, Duma. And that was the pretext for a military action. No investigation needed. And then they did this long protracted investigation afterwards. And what did they find? Well, it turns out not very much, not very much. So this is the war that we're in right now. I think this is really important as well because any future uh, aggression against Syria is really gonna hinge on how people view, people that matter anyway, how they view this OPCW scandal. Mm. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's uh, move on to this then. The Bank for International Settlements is holding what they're describing as an innovation summit in a week or so's time. Uh, and uh, well, what's this all about? It's all about digital digital IDs, Patrick. Are, this is being pushed hard, but also uh, digital central bank digital currencies. Um, so the theme of the summit is uh, how can central banks innovate in the digital age? Uh, and they're very interested uh, on key issues around cross-border and retail payments, central bank digital currencies, banking and the new digital ecosystem, decentralized finance, data analytics, AI, cloud technologies, as well as cultural and organizational changes that might be needed within central banks to meet the challenges in this digital age. So we're talking about a total digital transformation, uh, digital ID, as we've mentioned earlier in the program, part of it. Uh, who's uh, going to be, uh, who's involved? Well, of course, we've got representation from the Federal Reserve, uh, from uh, the Bundesbank in Germany. Uh, Mark Carney there, of course, who's a special envoy for climate action uh, for the United Nations and also uh, uh, Boris Johnson's climate advisor for the COP26. He's going to be speaking. He's particularly photoshopped uh, in his image there, uh, trying to look uh, uh, a lot younger than he is. But nonetheless, uh, he's going to be there because that's really what this is about. This is uh, great reset stuff. Microsoft is in there as well, Mike. Of, of so course. ID2020, Microsoft is right in the uh, fast lane. Uh, along with the uh, big central bankers there. For sure, and uh, and of course we've got Bank of England representation there from Sir, Sir John Cunliffe. So, uh, so that'll be uh, in a week or two's time, and looking forward to that, we'll see what they say. Now, uh, the news from Norway, we've mentioned Norway a few times today, uh, but uh, I thought this was quite interesting. Um, this is uh, Norway uh, and their fertility, uh, and this has been uh, published by the Nor Norwegian Statistics Agency. Uh, and they're saying that uh, Norwegian fertility has fallen every single year since 2009. Well, in fact, 2008 was really the inflection point there. And I'm just wondering, Patrick, uh, whether this is mainly economic related. So immediately following the financial crash, mm. uh, whether that caused the latest downturn in fertility in Norway. But it is quite stark. Uh, they're saying that this has uh, broken several annual records in a row uh, and it's reaching an all-time low. So in 2020, 53,000 children were born in Norway and that's 1,500 fewer than the, the year before, 8,800 fewer than in 2009. Um, so uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of that other than, uh, as I suggest, um, economic reasons. But uh, uh, and what's interesting, what's uh, fascinating about that, if you look at the, the green line there is, is all women in Norway, uh, the black line is uh, immigrant women, uh, there is a seems to be a correlation between the two. So it, it's, to me, it looks more like economic rather than environmental. There could be economic, but there could also be uh, technological, there could be legislative, uh, there could be cultural. So there's a lot of, you know, an increase in online activity, Mike. We've seen around that 2008 period where people spending, uh, compounding the time spent on social media, on on, on social networks in front mm -hmm. in front of their smartphone. That's when that really hit, and you know, not just doubled, but quadrupled in a space of just a couple of years. Yes. So certainly, from a social science point of view or a, a human science point of view, that that would be something I would be looking at as well, as that might be a factor, that might be a variable in that trend. Yes. Okay, we'll end with uh, hacks, computer hacks. And uh, well, Patrick, over the last number of years, we've seen lots and lots of rhetoric in the press about 
nasty Russian hackers, uh, state-sponsored Russian hackers. Uh, they've done everything from interfere with the US general election to the Brexit referendum to the uh, Scottish independence referendum. Despite any evidence that they actually have, yes. but a lot of rhetoric in the press, right? right. So Russia now has been dropped as the big bad bear of, uh, of hacking, and now it's China. Um, so apparently there's been a huge hack uh, on Microsoft Exchange email servers, uh, which are usually run by corporate entities around the UK. Uh, this is from the National Cybersecurity Center, and they've been giving advice following Microsoft vulnerabilities uh, exploitation. They say that Microsoft has made public that sophisticated actors have attacked a number of Exchange servers and in response uh, have released multiple security updates for affected services servers. These updates have been released ahead of the monthly update cycle because four of the seven vulnerabilities have been used in limited targeted attacks. Attacks, the security updates fix the vulnerabilities exploited in the initial attack. Now in this particular release, the NCSC doesn't say who's responsible for it. It's left to Microsoft to do that. So let's have a look. Uh, here is the, their uh, press release on this new nation-state cyber attacks uh, and they're saying today we're sharing information about a state-sponsored threat actor identified by the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center, MSTIC, uh, that we're calling Hafnium. Hafnium operates from China uh, and this is the first time we're discussing its activity. It's a highly skilled and sophisticated actor. Historically, Hafnium primarily targets uh, entities in the United States for the purposes of exfiltrating information from a number of industrial sectors, including infectious disease researchers, law firms, higher education institutions, defense contractors, policy think tanks, and NGOs. While Hafnium is based in China, it conducts its operations pri primarily from leased pri virtual private servers in the United States. So what they're saying is uh, that they claim that these are Chinese, that they're in China, but they are uh, using computers that are based in the U.S., um, so that's good stuff. Enemy within. Enemy within. Could be could be in a, in a closet near you. Yes. Or Hillary um, Clinton's bathroom. And well, indeed. Um, so I just wanted to uh, I just wanted to highlight a BBC article. Um, uh, I'm just going to just hold on. If you just give me one second, I will uh, quickly fix this because you need to see the the headline of it. So uh, so here's the uh, here's the headline. Exchange email hack, hundreds of UK firms compromised, and they say hundreds of UK companies have been compromised as part of a global uh, campaign linked to Chinese hackers. Cybersecurity firm Asset said more than 500 email servers in the UK may have been hacked, may have been, and many companies are not aware that they're victims of the attack. It comes as governments around the world warn organisations to secure their systems. But this was the bit that caught me with the, uh, with the BBC's coverage of this. Uh, the headline or the subheadline towards the end of the article, beware the second wave. Oh, um, still, we're starting to see COVID, COVID language being brought into other topics uh, in order to maintain the, the propaganda effect of the terms that are being used. I thought it was spectacular. Wow, second, first wave, second wave, uh, uh, up, get your updates, get your patches, viruses. These are all things that Bill Gates perfected during his uh, days at Microsoft. Yes. He knows how to spin a buck or two out of viruses and patches and updates. So what's coming next? The hacking variants. We could have some virus, online viral variants. Now, the next thing you should be uh, looking out for. Yes, indeed. But it, it was China. Don't worry. It was. Yeah, we, we thought it was the Russians, but it might be China. When it might have, might have been hacked. Mm. Might have been hacked. We don't know, and we you won't know. know if you've been hacked. No, no, you won't. You won't know. We know, but trust us. But get we'll, your system vaccinated. We're the government. We'll tell you, and Microsoft <laughs> will tell you if it if that's what's happening. Yes, indeed. Okay, we will leave it there for today. Thank you very much for joining me today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Uh, we hope to see you then and have a great weekend. Bye-bye.